Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. We've been in the Gospel of John for a while. We're just now getting to chapter 2. And, uh, you know, beginning, John begins with the pre-existent Christ. He goes on to the incarnate Christ, you know, Jesus taking on the body in verse 14, to John the Baptist's witness of Christ. John now records for us the first miracle of Christ. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. I must inject at this point in the introduction John's purpose for this letter. Okay? If you go back to the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, we read this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed. The first sign he records for us is turning water into wine, which is our text this morning. The reason why he records it for us, he follows with this. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, including turning water into wine, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But that's not all. Notice the next phrase the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, when, the, when John talked about true saving faith, he talked about it with two main things in, in, in mind. Number one, the object was always Jesus Christ. The object is this Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, But number two, it was a persevering faith. It was a faith that would continue on to grow and develop That's what John had in his mind when he used the term faith. So when you read in chapter 20, verse 31, and that believing in the grammar, continuous, ongoing, he wants us to continue to believe because that's true saving faith. True saving faith, in other words, perseveres. It might get weak. It might struggle at times. But it never gives up. It never loses its focus on Christ. Right? Amen? Remember that. Well, I don't need to remember that. Yes, you will, because there's going to be times in your life when things are going so bad, you're going to tend to not focus on Christ anymore. So it's not just for unbelievers. The Gospel of John is to encourage believers to persevere in their faith, and we need that most when we have struggles in life. Amen? So, and that's why John recorded this first miracle in chapter 2. I also want to point out something else for you in that purpose statement in chapter 20. John uses the word sign. Signs. What's a sign? It points to something. The reason why signs exist is to point us to something beyond itself. A sign never exists for the sake of itself. It always points to something else. It never exists for itself, but it always points to the object. It points to an object. It it could be a warning sign. It could be any kind of sign. But this one, as well as all signs and miracles and wonders, were always for the purpose of pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Turning water into wine is the exact same thing. So let's open up our Bibles if you're not there, and we'll read together verses 1 through 11. So let's stand together and read out of the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some of it out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. Now, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom over and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. End of story. Then John says in verse 11, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in the Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for the wonderful words of life. Thank you for, Holy Spirit, for moving John to pen the write this down to strengthen our faith, to help us to see the power of Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is in control of molecules and atoms that can turn water into wine without time. He just does it. God, you, you just speak things. You just think things. You, you just will them. And you, you need nothing outside of yourself to get anything done. It just happens because of your power, because of who you are. God, you are awesome. And your son is no less. Your son truly is the son of God. He truly is our savior. And here we have evidence of that. In his first miracle. God encourage us this morning. Write this. Etch it in our hearts. That he is king of king and lord of lords. Not just of humanity. But even the things that we do not see. The invisible powers. The principalities. He is the king and sovereign ruler of it all. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. Now to help us understand this little short story within the bigger story of Jesus's ministry, I broke it down into three parts. Number one, the setting, okay? The setting, verses one through five. The solution, verses six through 10. And the significance, verse 11. So we have the setting, the solution, and the significance, okay? Pretty simple there in these 11 verses. Let's look first at the setting, the setting, all right? It's a simple story, but but one that John felt that was obviously important to include for his purpose of writing this letter, that people might believe and continue on believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And on this occasion, there's a wedding going on. And Mary obviously knew the party or the parties involved, verse 1, and the mother of Jesus was there. Not only that, we see her concern uh, when they ran out of wine, so she went to Jesus because she felt bad for the host running out of wine. And here's why. Back in the day, they had, it was kind of like an oriental wedding. After the ceremony of the, the bride and the groom, they had a feast that lasted for about a week. And during that feast, they would drink. They would have wine. They had to go for a week. 
I can remember going to school back in the early 80s at, at, at Tennessee Temple, and I'm sitting there in class, and we're going over the story, and it was a Bible study methods class, and, and the professor was looking at us, and he's going, the Greek word is oinos, wine. It was not grape juice, and there was a couple guys behind me, you know, the real fundamentalists. Oh, they were really upset. Okay. Beloved, it was water to wine. It wasn't water to grape juice. Okay, it's real simple. The Greek word is oinos. It means wine every single time it's used. Okay, you, you can't dance around that, or if you try, you just you fall flat. So it's what's happening here. And uh, remember, about wine, drunkenness is a sin. Paul told Timothy, drink a little bit is good for your stomach. Okay? So we're Grace Community Church. Hint, hint. Okay? I'm not advocating let's go drink wine, you know, whenever. But what I'm saying is a little bit of wine is not sin. If you know him for getting drunk, you're in sin. Okay? And it gets to, if it gets to any one of us that you're doing that, we're going to lovingly come to you and tell you to stop. Okay? Right? Okay? And if you struggle with it, stay away from it. Not everyone's going to struggle with it. But, you know, if this brother struggles with this over here and you don't, well, there's going to be another area of life that you struggle with that this brother doesn't. You see what I'm saying? We all have struggles. If you struggle with it or with whatever you struggle with, it can't just be wine, just, just don't be around that influence to where you'll stumble. Make sense? Really simple. And why, by the way? Not because we're goody two-shoes or holier than thou, but because of Jesus. We love him. And we want to live lives that magnify him. Amen? So having said that, we'll go on with this story. Uh, verse 2, Jesus and the disciples were there. Mary was there. They were like guests. It's kind of like Mary said, hey, come on, we've got this wedding we're going to, and y'all can come along, you, you know. And so verse 2, a real simple statement. And notice the, kind of the details here, because John was along. So he knows what happened. He's kind of there. And so he's describing this for us. Verse 3, when the r- wine ran out, that's a bad thing. When the wine runs out, it's a bad thing. Because the host was responsible for basically a week of supplying this during the festival, during the feast, celebrating this wedding that just took place. So the mother said to him, they have no wine. Mary's concern goes to Jesus. Hey, they ran out. It's not supposed to happen. I feel sorry for them. It's an embarrassing situation for the host kind of thing going on there. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman. Now, that's not a derogatory comment as it is today. And he didn't say it with attitude. Woman, he didn't say it with attitude. It's more like lady or more of a respectful term back then. We've got to get out of our modern 21st century culture uh, attitude towards that word woman. You know, so it wasn't said with attitude. It was, it was a term of respect, and she responded to that, by the way. Uh, actually, if you want to go later on in John chapter 19, it kind of supports this. <clears throat> John chapter 19, verse 26. This is the crucifixion, by the way. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, what's the word he used? Woman. You think he said it with attitude, hanging on the cross? No. It was a term of endearment back then. Okay? Behold your son. So there you have it. Okay? So don't think for a minute, oh, Jesus was being disrespectful. No. Back then, it's a term of respect, very respectful. The evidence of that is also in chapter 19, verse 26. But he goes on to say, why are you involving us? 
My hour has not yet come. What do I have to do with this situation? Now, notice Mary's response, verse 5. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. That's an attitude of submission. You know, if he comes to you later on, it could be a couple hours from now, whatever he tells you to do, whatever he says, just do what he says. That's really a submissive spirit. Do we have that kind of spirit towards our Lord Jesus Christ? Father, you know, whatever you want, your will be done. I have mine, but actually, Lord God, I, the reason I'm in the Word, the reason why I study your Word is because I want your Word, your will, to conform mine into yours. Does that make sense? That's what, isn't that one thing that Bible study is really all about, isn't it? It's about saying, yielding to God and saying, I want you to conform my will to yours. How do we do that? Getting into the Word of God. That's what a quiet time is all about. That's what preaching is all about. Amen? That's what Sunday school is all about. That's what children's church is all about. It's, it's about submission and wanting to take on God's will and God's heart, God's plan, and walk in obedience to it. Amen? And so we see that by Mary here in verse 5. I, I looked at, up the phrase, my hour has not yet come. Notice that's in a negative. But it's said in the positive three other times in the Gospel of John. I want you to point that out to you. For example, excuse me. For example, in chapter 12, uh, well, excuse me, verse 11, for an example. Uh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Oh, if I get your notes right, how about chapter 12, verse 23, okay? Notice he says this, the hour has come. That's stated in the positive, right? In our text this morning, he's, my hour has not yet come. But a couple hours later, he, the water's turned to wine, Okay. But here, the same kind of phrase in the positive is stated. I'll tell you a minute why I'm bringing this up. It says it again in 13.1 of all the Gospel of John. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. Notice the phrase, saying it over again. And he says it again in 17.1 in his high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. What does that mean? What's that in reference to? The hour has come to reveal his glory. That's what it's all about. Well, what do you mean? Let's start with the last verse I just ended with, 17.1. The hour has come, glorify your son, John 17.1. Notice the phrase. What I'm, what I'm saying is this. Whenever he uses the phrase, the hour has come, it's always in reference for its time to manifest my glory. You see that in 17.1? You see that also in 13.1. Okay. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. That's in reference to what? The exaltation of Christ, the ascension, his glory is in mind there. And then 1223, and Jesus answered him saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to what? Be glorified. So we go back to chapter 2, our main text, and turning water to wine. And, and Jesus was concerned with the exact time, the exact hour, whereby he would begin through signs and wonders to what? Reveal his glory. That's what it's about. Now, now this will be very important. Very important coming up, and you can see that in just a minute. Because today, we have people claiming to be doing signs and wonders and miracles, and they're not doing it for the glory of Christ. 
it notice every time it's not even for the glory of the Holy Spirit. It's for Christ's glory. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself, but to the second person of the Trinity. Jesus even taught that in John chapter 16, where he said, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. So all the signs, the wonders, and miracles that Jesus did was to manifest his glory, to manifest and reveal how powerful he is, that he is the Son of God. He is the incarnate Christ. He is the preexistent Son of God, period. Let's look at verses 6 through 10, the solution. We just talked, gave the setting, and now the solution. John describes what happens next in verses 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Custom of purification. This is something that they washed their hands before and after meals. It was customary for them to do that, right? And that's why those water pots were there. And that's a lot of them, 20 to 30 gallons each times six. That's a lot. It's going to be a lot of wine. So they had many guests, right? And finally, Jesus said in verse 7, said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, the very top. And then he said to them, okay, you're done with that. Now draw, dip some out, and go take it to the head waiter for him to test it out. The head waiter had no clue what was going on. No clue. The servants knew what was going on because they were obeying what Jesus said to do. And so he said, fill the water pots. They filled them up. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they did that. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine. So think about it for a minute. Fill the pots with water to the brim. They did that. Now dip it out. From that moment on to the point where they took it to the head waiter, it turned into what? Wine, that is not normal, that is abnormal. That is not natural, it's supernatural. Are you with me? See, supernatural means God bypasses the natural. He just bypasses it. He's in control of what? The molecules, the atoms, everything. So what's happening? Jesus is revealing at this moment, the very first sign, revealing that he is the Son of God. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the one back in creation. If he created water, he could turn it into wine. Right? Now you might think, well, wonder why John started way back with the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, referring back to creation. Because every time Jesus did a miracle, he bypassed the creation, the natural process of the creation that he created. When he walked on water, he bypassed the law of gravity, right? Or whatever laws is involved in sinking in water, right? Make sense? So, and they're unmistakable. We'll get to that in a moment. So now we know what's going on. Verse 10, he calls the bridegroom, and the, that is the head waiter, tastes the wine and goes, oh my goodness, this is the best stuff. It's good. He goes, well, this isn't normal. People don't do this at a wedding feast. They usually save the worst for last because by that time, they're really festive and having a good time, and they don't know a difference. This is reality. I'm not making this up. This is, you know, we tend to think, we forget that Jesus Christ dwelt amongst raw, everyday sinners, people. 
And he got messy doing it. And he had turned water into wine at this event. Okay. And what was normal was that they saved the worst to last because by that time, people couldn't tell a difference. <laughs> Am I not? It's, right? Okay. And so the, uh, the head waiter's like, hey, groom, verse 10, every man serves the good wine first. When the people have drank freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you, contrary to that, you have kept the good wine until now. It doesn't say anything about the, the groom as response to that, but he's probably going, I didn't do that. Jesus did it. It's a miracle. I tell you, if you don't believe this, go home, get a glass, pour some water into it, sit down on the counter, and see how long it takes to turn into wine. Let me know in a couple years. You'll still be here. Okay, we'll still, if we're still here, let me know. The molecular changes that took place in a second, in a notice. That's why they were shocked. That's why they were shocked. I want to park there for a moment before we get to verse 11 and get to the significance of the story because we live in a day and age where people are claiming that many signs and wonders are going on. and We've got to deal with that. It, I'd, be, I'd be amiss to bypass this because this is application. And so you turn to TBN, you hear other people. Uh, I can name a bunch, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Miles Monroe, Andrew Mormack, Jimmy Duplantis, Mike Bickle of IHOP. You ever heard of them? Beware. Paul Crouch and TBN, the biggest, largest, what we call evangelical television network there is. They all claim they're charismatics, they're Pentecostals, and they all claim to do signs and wonders and miracles. Correct? They do. Okay? In a minute, we're going to compare what Jesus did and how he did it with what they say. We're going to do that in just a minute. And it'll be like five or six points with that. But as elders, it's our responsibility to warn you. I'm not at home with you watching you watch what you watch on TV or what you might hear on Christian radio because there's a lot of stuff out there that's bad. Okay? And with false signs and wonders comes a false gospel. Let me say that again. With false signs and wonders comes a what? A false message, a false gospel. And that's what's at stake here. That's why it's important today. And you, and you might have heard or you might see, and, and, and it might be enticing to you, and you might go, I wonder if that's true. Let's go through the Word of God to show you why I'm warning you of this, and it's wrong, it's bad, it's false. Okay? What's going on today is nothing compared to what Jesus did back then. Okay? Today, there's Pentecostals and Charismatics. The Word of Faith movement comes out of them. That's to name it and claim it. Or, or they say it this way, if you have enough faith, then you will prosper. The reason why you don't prosper health or monetary is because you don't have enough faith. Everything contingent upon your faith. That's wrong. That's a false gospel. In other words, everything rests on your shoulders, not Christ anymore. And then you begin, in, in that scenario, you begin to treat God as a puppet or a crystal ball. 
okay, God, now that I have enough faith, you owe me. You're obligated to give to me a healthier life. You're obligated to give me more money. You're obligated to give me happiness. Why? Because I've got enough faith now, God. So come on. That's basically what they promote. Okay? And it comes from people like I mentioned earlier. You've heard of Benny Hinn. You've heard of Kenneth Copeland. And some of their teaching is so bad. For example, Kenneth Copeland talked about, we are all little gods. Are you kidding me? And I could go on and on, but I don't really give them much time. And then there's this happiness prosperity. It's, I don't want to call it fringe. They're right in the middle of it, but it seems like they're fringe, like a Joel Osteen. Joyce Myers or T.D. Jakes, who, by the way, teaches a false trinity. Okay? That's why this is important. Whether, whether what I say you like or not, I'm, I'm doing this because I think the Lord would want me to inform you that through the scriptures we can expose some of this, this false gospel, this false teaching that goes on amongst these people who claim to do signs and wonders and miracles. Let me, before I go on with this little list of comparisons, I want you to know that scripture is quite clear uh, that, that, that warns us about these false signs and wonders. For example, the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, verse 24, we turn there for a moment. Yes, in reference to end times, but folks, as every day passes, we're a day closer. Okay, and I want you to listen to this. Verse 24, chapter 24, verse 24 of Matthew, it's called the Olivet Discourse. He says this, for false Christs and false prophets... Hey, wait a minute. Out of this movement of charismatics and Pentecostals, out of this word of faith movement, they call one another prophets and apostles. They still hold to that. Listen, listen. The office of an apostle is done with. John was probably the last one from the island of Patmos wrote Revelation. When the canon was closed, the, the, the apostles are gone. Okay? No more. And the only prophet there is today is the one that will preach, preach forth the word of God. Okay, a prophet, his responsibility was twofold to foretell the future and to foretell the truth that was already given. Well, that first part responsibility of a prophet is off the scene. It, there's no more foretelling. We have the foretelling. We have the word of God. Now what's left is for the preacher, the pastor, the elder is to preach forth what God has already given in the word of God to foretell the truth. That's it. And yet we have men today claiming to be apostles and prophets. And it all comes out of the charismatic Pentecostal movement, the word of faith movement. So Jesus says, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great what? Here it is. Signs and wonders. Nothing new under the sun. And here's how intense it is. I think this last phrase is meant to show us the intensity of this. To, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, the child of God. Wow. How about another one? Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9. Just write that down if you'd like. And let me read this. Still talking about towards the end times, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then, here it is, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, before the appearance of his coming, look at verse 9. How will he come? He'll come in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So as to what? Mislead the elect, the children of God. This is all against the church. This is not done so as to to blind the world, so to speak, as it is is to deceive the church, to water it down. It's an attack on Christ and his body is ultimately what this is about. As ultimately what Satan is about is to attack and to crumble the church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, the gates of hell are trying to prevail. And one of the means by which they do that is false signs and wonders. But it will not prevail. God's people will be saved. And then you have Revelation 13 where you have the beast in the end. And he's going to what? Produce a lot of false signs and wonders. That's verses 13 and 14 out of Revelation 13. Now I want you to notice one other thing. In Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, don't turn there. This is kind of like a little side note, and I think it's very important. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, listen to these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now, many would think right off the bat, I'm going to stop right there, the will of my Father. Well, certainly that would include signs and wonders and things of that nature. Let's go on. Many will say to me on that day, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Ah. Did, and, and, and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus says this, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Get away from me. You who practice iniquity, lawlessness. In other words, on the outside, it looked like you were one of mine. And in your performance looked like you belonged to me. But on the inside, you were selfish, self-centered, and you didn't do it for my glory. Get away from me. Because in reality, you do not know me. Though you look like it on the outside, on the inside, you are far away from me. Depart. But notice what this person will cry out. Look at what I did. And it wasn't like I exercised my spiritual gift or I did that or did this. Uh, we, we prophesied. We cast out demons. And in your name performed many miracles. Didn't we do all those things? Look, look at what we did. And they did them. They weren't making that up. He's going, you still didn't know me. Because the relationship with Christ is not based on what we do. It's based on him and what he's already accomplished on the cross. Amen? All right. Having said that, let's go on. Six characteristics of Jesus. This is signs and wonders, okay? And they're kind of like in contrast with what we hear about today. Number one, okay? Number one, today they claim that miracles are based upon one's faith. Back in Jesus' day, 
Jesus' miracles was not dependent upon whether one had faith or not. You get the difference. Today they say, well, you, if you have enough faith, then you'll get a miracle. Okay? Why don't you trust me, send me $100 in the mail, and, and the miracle's going to be God's going to bless you fourfold. Right? And if you don't send it, well, that kind of means you don't have enough faith. Who are they asking to have faith in? Themselves. That's the preacher, the, that false teacher on TV is asking for you to really trust them, and they're using the name of God to do it. Okay. For example, uh, what they say is that God will reward those with sufficient faith with both material and prosperity and physical health. So no wonder, the, this is where the false gospel comes into play. It's a false faith. This is a counterfeit faith. So there's this true saving faith that the Bible talks about, that the New Testament talks about, that the Old Testament talks about. And so Satan now has, has managed to conjure up a counterfeit faith to counteract what God is doing. Okay? And it's called a prosperity gospel. The true saving faith has Christ as its object. This counterfeit faith has me as its object because I want to prosper. I want to live my best life now. I want this and that. I want to be happy. Well, the call to follow Christ is not a call to be happy. It's a call to be holy. You see how they malign and twist it all up? But look at this for a moment. There's many examples of people who witnessed Jesus' signs and wonders and yet remained in unbelief. Okay? In Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, Jesus rebuked the cities where he performed most of his miracles. And yet many of them, most of them did not believe. Later on in our own gospel book, in the gospel of John, we read in chapter 6, there was many people following him. Many people following him. And in the beginning of chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people at one time. And that's probably just the men. It's probably many more than that. And then later on, he teaches. But by the end of that chapter, multitude, many of those people he had fed and they'd witnessed and benefited from that miracle, left his ministry based upon his teaching. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. These, this is a group of people that came out of that 5,000 that were fed. So the miracle was not contingent upon their faith. They were blessed even though they didn't believe. You get the point? But today, you know, if you have faith, expect a miracle. John twelve thirty seven really sums it up. We just kind of quote that for us this morning. But though he had performed so many signs before them, in front of them, so they could see and witness, yet they were not believing in him. You see, here's what happens. People get caught up into the signs. They love the benefit of the signs. They don't understand the purpose of the signs. The purpose of the signs is the point beyond itself to Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the purpose of the sign. The purpose of the miracle is to point to Christ, to turn people to Christ. And here they take something good like signs and say, oh, it's for me. I'm just going to park with the sign. I'm going to benefit from the sign. 
and they never go to Christ. That's the problem with charismatics and Pentecostalism. Right? So, here's another one. They were not performed, Jesus' miracles were not performed for money or prestige. That's all you hear about today. You know, Jesus nor any of his apostles ever healed a person for personal gain. Actually, he was suffered for what he was doing. He suffered for a miracle. He suffered from, from healing someone on the Sabbath. He, he suffered. In Acts chapter 8, Peter, offer, Peter was offered money in exchange for the power of healing. And what did Jesus do? In eight chap, chapter 8, verse 20, he rebuked the man by saying, may your silver perish with you. You cannot buy this. In fact, Jesus tells us what? You cannot serve both God and mammon. Listen, if you just look at the lifestyle of these folks that I mentioned, and there's so many others, in the charismatic Pentecostal circles, they have jets. They got Lear jets. I mean, they got money. Don't tell me they're not in it for money. Come on. Let us not be deceived. Number three, Jesus' miracles were completely successful. For example, if he healed a blind man, he saw 20-20. If he healed a lame man, a paralytic, he got up and ran that moment, that second. He didn't get up with a limp. He didn't hobble for a while. He didn't struggle. And I got a question. In any one of these instances, did any of these people... Would Jesus laid hands on him, fall back on the ground? I'm just saying. No. Was it about that? The deaf man heard perfectly when he healed him. In the multitude that he fed, they got so full, there's food left over. When he healed, and did miracles, they were completely and full to the nth degree. In other words, the next point is they were undeniable and unmistakable, a miracle. Even the enemies knew that they were miraculous. They couldn't deny them. In John 10, 33, they say, for a good work, we do not stone you. That's in reference to the works of miracles, signs, and wonders. We can't stay. Some of them were there. They saw that. We can't stay. But for what? For blasphemy. Because you teach, being a man, you make yourself out to be God. They hung him on the cross, not because of all the good, wonderful miracle signs and wonders that he did, because they could not deny that he did those things. They did it because he claimed to be the Son of God. Number six. Excuse me, number five. Jesus' miracles were immediate and spontaneous, not rehearsed. Just like our story this morning, this was not rehearsed. If anybody was caught off guard, it was him. This was not a big meeting where they had to organize things behind the scenes. You know, you know what I mean? Even today, we have people organizing worship events so that they look good. People even organize baptisms and have people in the crowd come up to stir other people to come up. Oh, yeah, that happens. There's nothing, none of this fakeness about what Jesus did. It was real, true, and genuine. Even his enemies could not deny the validity and the genuineness of his miracles. So here's the last point, and it is the most important. 
They pointed to and authenticated who he is. They point to the gospel. That's the purpose of a sign, the purpose of a wonder, the purpose of a miracle, isn't it? It's never about us. It's about him. It's to open up our blind eyes that we might see. But even most people still didn't see. Many of his disciples will leave in chapter 6, having witnessed the signs and wonders and miracles up to that point. So what does it take? John chapter 3, you must be born again. Well, if they could only see a miracle, then they would believe. No. If they'd only witness a wonder or a sign, then they would believe. No, you must be born again. Here's the point. The greatest miracle, listen, please, if you get nothing else this morning or this year or the rest of your life, get this. The greatest miracle of them all is the salvation of a sinner by a sovereign and gracious God, period. That's it. It is a miracle that we love Jesus Christ because he's changed us from the inside. That's why the Bible calls us new creatures in Christ. That's why the Old Testament goes as far as to say a leopard can't change its own spots. I can't change myself. I cannot change my identity. I cannot keep myself or change myself from being a sinner. I'm naturally that way, and therefore I cannot change but God. And that's what he's done in Christ. That is the importance and the purpose and the significance of signs, which gets me to conclude to the last point, the significance of turning water into the wine in verse 11 in our text this morning. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And here's the point, manifesting his glory. To reveal, to show that he is the eternal Son of God, that He is the Savior, He is the Messiah. He is the one through the Old Testament that Moses, the law and the prophets pointed to, that wrote about, He is now here. That He is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the significance. Number two, they believed. Look at that. They believed, disciples believed in Him. Now, I want to... close with an observation here. These disciples in verse 11 is either, could include the ones he talked about and John wrote about in chapter 1 or the ones he not. I think it's his disciples overall believed. Then you might scratch your head and you might think, well, wait a minute. I thought they believed in chapter 1, right? Because they identified Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, Philip, Nathaniel did. Philip did. Andrew did. They use those terms, the Son of God, the Messiah. Notice this. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, what does that mean? Well, the water and the wine happened three days after what we read about Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. This is a short period right here. It's a matter of a couple of days. What we are witnessing is a faith that starts out like a mustard seed. And it begins to grow. And their faith increases. Oftentimes we get stuck into thinking this. I must remember the exact moment and second I was saved or else I'm lost. 
I say time out to that. For many, 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 that's the case. They can remember that definitive moment. But for some, it might not be so clear. Does that make sense? I think we get in trouble when we try to pigeonhole everybody into one exact same kind of experience. Sometimes conversion can last over days. Where God is just calling and drawing and convicting. And, 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 and it's intellectually it begins where, okay, I think he's the Messiah. And then maybe hours later, that means I'm a sinner. A couple days later, they really believe in the resurrection of Christ. So that conversion experience could last a little bit of time. Does that make some sense? I remember in my own journey of faith, when I went to Word of Life, they had, you know, get, put it down on a piece of paper, put it in your Bible on this date, on this hour, at this moment, you trusted Christ, you nail it. You nail it down. That's, you know you're saved from now on at that point. Well, my background's a little confusing because I trusted Christ and living with my parents when I was seven. Okay, at least intellectually. Later on when I was 20, I, decided to fo- I really decided to follow him. So I'm sitting there going, oh no, was I saved when I was seven? Or was I saved when I was 20? You see how you can get confused like that? I defer back to 20. Okay? I, I really do. Because the things I did between 7 and 20, oh, how could you be saved and do those things? You know what I mean? So I look at 7, I do as an intellectual, beginning to intellectually understand, but the conversion, the change of heart, I became a new creature when I was 20. So I say that to encourage you in your walk with Christ. I say that because Jesus is just beginning to disciple his disciples. And, and, and he just performed his first miracle. And though in chapter 1 they identified him as the Messiah or the one to whom Moses and the prophets wrote about, okay, the Son of God, now they actually for the first time witnessed his power. But beloved, though we don't witness the power of turning water into wine, you have witnessed the power of a transformed heart. A new heart, actually with a new disposition, with new desires, and a new will that says, I, beloved, I, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I surrender to Jesus. Amen? The greatest miracle ever performed by God is the salvation of us sinners. Amen?